show me the way to I'm taking my time on my ride. These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as the playlist. Welcome all, and a quick content warning. Today's show is deeply personal, and I will be describing experiences with domestic violence and mental illness. I'm going to lead with a diary-style story of 48 hours of my life, back when I was 23 years old. 7.15 a.m. No, I don't want no scrubs. A scrub is a guy that can't get no love from me. I smack the cheap radio alarm clock, blaring TLC's third Billboard number one hit, eighth top ten single, and second Billboard ranked song for 1999. And while it was the first lead vocal for Azonda Chili Thomas, it was written by former Escape member Candy Burris on the back of an envelope in her car as she mused about her friend's relationship that she described as a screw-up. Natalie Whaley of Vibe stated that the song is, quote, a scathing critique on men at the bottom of the dating pool, end quote. Hanging out the passenger side of his best friend's ride, trying to holla at me, I can barely open my eyes. It was past 2 a.m. when I'd fallen asleep the night before. He'd come home high and drunk, and when I said I was tired and refused him sex, he decided to punish me by waking me up every time I was nearly asleep by calling me bitch, whore, stupid, critiquing every aspect of my life. This was a purposeful psychological technique designed to make me relent to having sex with him. Psychological force rather than overt force, if you will. Give him 10 minutes to violently use me and pass out or listen to him rant for hours. The thought of him being inside me turned my stomach. I refused to give in tonight. So, I paid the price. Luckily, I worked a boring desk job at a mutual funds company with a chill boss, where I could listen to Mariah and browse internet forums all day, so long as my bank clients were happy. a.m. Finally, I pulled myself off the comforter on the floor where we slept because the couch was too small and it was impossible to hide enough money from him to save up for a bed. He knew how much I got paid and there was always something he needed, wanted, cigarettes, weed, parts for a car. My back ached. As my pregnancy progressed, the situation was untenable. Our apartment had five rooms, but the only one furnished was our daughter's. While he begrudged me, thankfully, he did not begrudge her. So she had a cute princess bed, a room strewn with Barbies and Polly Pockets, and a closet full of clothes. She was stirring, but still asleep. Quickly, I showered, threw on a blouse, blazer, and skirt, ran some pantine mousse through my long, wet hair to minimize the frizz, applied some concealer to my pale, washed-out face, and a touch of mascara to hide the exhaustion. And when I went to wake her, she'd already put on some purple Garanimals pants with a pink shirt, good enough to hang out at her nan's for the day. 7.45 a.m. I tried to wake her father for 15 minutes because we needed to drive to his mother's where we'd drop her off and where then I'd be picked up by a co-worker slash friend who was kind enough to take me and another woman in our neighborhood to work each morning. She refused to let me pay her. She loved Top 40 like I did and she also had a spouse who wasn't mm, the greatest and singing along to Matchbox 20 and the Spice Girls and grousing about our spouses on the way to work was one of my favorite rituals. 7.50 a.m. He took his sweet time getting ready. When I told him I was going to be late, he called me a stupid bitch for not waking him up earlier. 7.55 a.m. Shit. 
The Nissan won't start. We won't make it to his mom's on time. I call my ride. She doesn't pick up. She's already left to pick me up. Shit. 8.05 a.m. Our neighbor jumps our car. We head to his mom's, him smoking, me fighting off morning sickness, fighting all the way there. 8.10 a.m. We arrive at his mom's. My ride is gone. Panic sets in. This is the third time I've missed my ride, and you can only burn the same bridge so many times. I have to call work and tell them I'll be at least an hour and a half late, and that's assuming both buses arrive on time. My job pays all the bills. Cars on its last legs. I've had five hours sleep. I've been yelled at for hours on either side of that sleep. I don't call work. I don't leave for the bus. I burst into tears. I spiral out, unable to breathe, unable to regulate. He yells at me to stop crying and to go to work. I cry harder. I hyperventilate. He tells his mom I'm crazy and he doesn't know how to deal with me anymore. His father tells him to call the police. I don't know this at the time, but 10% of police calls are for mental health issues. I was 23 and my panic attack started when I was 9. I didn't have a diagnosis. I'd never seen a therapist for my underlying mental health issues or to process and understand how I'd fled an abusive childhood home into a home with an abusive partner. And there was so much stigma well, still is, surrounding mental health and domestic violence, I had nobody to talk to about either. 8.30 a.m. I rock back and forth on the porch swing, knees curled to my chest, sobbing, mascara running. I cry out, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. I don't care who sees or hears me. None of them check on me. I'm damaged. I don't remember when the police arrived or what they said. 9 a.m. I can't stop crying. They grab my arms and push me into the back of the car. Sirens blaring. We're moving quickly. She was crying on the porch watching them pull me away. How I wanted to punch the smug grin off his face. Nothing. Nothing. I want to die. 1 o'clock p.m. They ask me if I can calm down. They ask me if I can stop crying. Why the hell should I? My tears are mine. They can't take them away. No, I yell. I cannot. I will not. If you want to go home, they say you're going to have to show that you can control yourself. I have no home, and I haven't been in control for a long time. 2.30 p.m. Ride on the elevator, and I'm now on the ninth floor. I'm no longer sobbing, but no one has explained why I'm here, in this small room, alone. Fuck this. I'm not staying here. Damn it. 30 minutes later. Reader's Digest sucks. I head for the elevator and press the down button and wait for a long time. But the light doesn't light up. Maybe it's broken. I wait and wait. That figures. I head for the stairwell. I push on the door hard, but it doesn't budge. Ow, hurt my shoulder. Weird. Try again. Door will not budge. I head for the front desk and ask how I get off this floor. Told the patients can't leave the ninth floor without permission. Patients? They apologize for my long wait in the waiting room and tell me my room is ready. 5 o'clock p.m. I find a notepad on the side of my bed. How nice. Like a hotel. I'm conflicted about my roommate. She's got long brown hair, piercing dark eyes, it's wearing a gray sweatsuit. She says she's schizo, her word, not mine, and asks me where they picked me up. Picked me up? I'm confused. One minute I was crying after a particularly brutal fight with my boyfriend. The next, I was in a car. It must be a mistake that I'm here. She tells me she's happy that they picked her up. She'd spent four straight nights in an abandoned building without food. No one bothers her there but the cops. Here they feed her three meals a day but she doesn't like that she can only smoke on schedule and they force her to take meds. When she takes her meds, she can't hear the voices in her head and she feels afraid without them. I don't see any straps on the bed. 
Is that good or bad? She asked me what my babies do. I'm only five months pregnant and didn't realize I was showing. She had three children once, she says. I reach down and feel my stomach, but don't respond. 6.30 p.m. There's a TV on in the break room, but it plays TV news. I hate TV news. Car crashes, scams targeting the elderly, petty theft. Never any good news. Some stare in a trance at the glowing box. Others smoke. Others ask everyone they see if they can borrow a smoke. I notice a rather young man talking to himself and writing on a whiteboard. The board has lists of various sessions one can sign up for. Different types of therapy. Reminds me of Girl Scout camp or a retreat, getting to choose activities. That was really fun the one year I got to go, back in the fifth grade. Maybe later I'll sign up for something. For now, I drink from my paper cup of diluted apple juice and eat the stale chocolate chip cookie. The sugar rush feels nice. 8 o'clock p.m. It's almost dark. Not too many people are wandering the hallways now. I'm sitting in bed. Schizo Girl is staring out the window. I know it's mean to call her Schizo Girl, even if it's in my head, and even if it's how she refers to herself. My Uncle Keith has schizophrenia, and he's a nice guy. Wouldn't hurt anyone. Since it's only in my mind, I decide it's okay. But it's not, and I'm really just trying to differentiate myself from her, when I shouldn't. I don't like sleeping anywhere but in my bed. I wonder how she's doing. She doesn't like to sleep without me. I'm afraid even sleeping overnight at my grandma's house, where I stay on occasion to get a break from him. She lives on the eighth floor, the top floor of her apartment building, and it makes no rational sense that an intruder would sneak through a secure building and then travel all the way up to the top floor to break into her apartment to attack me. But since when is fear rational? I briefly consider if it would be more harmful to go home to him or to stay in this room with the wide-eyed girl who talks to pigeons. I'm a mentally ill person with internalized prejudice against another perfectly nice girl with mental illness. Awesome. I walk down to the front desk and ask if I can go home. No, not for at least 48 hours, but I can use the payphone to make a call. Great. Just like jail. 9.15 p.m. A nurse drops a plastic shop and safe bag off to my room. She sighs, exasperated. Tells me I'm lucky. They normally don't accept personal items after 9 p.m., but since it's my first night, they made an exception. I pull out a pair of pajamas from Kmart, some scratchy but much better than the thin and nearly see-through puke green robes for patients who aren't lucky enough to have someone bring them Kmart pajamas. Two pairs of socks, a crossword puzzle book, a dime store novel, and cigarettes. I don't smoke. He must have bought them for himself and left them in the bag by mistake. I remember the break room. These cigarettes are the best thing in the bag. Saturday, November 23rd, 8 o'clock a.m. A nurse comes into my room with a cart. She's standing over my bed with a needle. It's just routine. They check our blood every morning. I ask if it's mandatory. I don't want them to test my blood. What if I have a horrible disease? HIV? I can't handle knowing right now. No. They cannot take my blood. Like my tears, my blood is mine. I shake my head back and forth vehemently and withdraw my arm. The nurse is too overworked and underpaid to deal with a combative patient. She leaves my bed and heads over to my roommate. My roommate holds out her arm like a good girl. She's used to the routine. 1 o'clock p.m. I spent the morning doing crossword puzzles and reading the dime store novel. A father murdered his daughter and is trying to cover it up. Doesn't want his wife and son to find out. The daughter's best friend is on to him. Trashy, but entertaining. When I offer my roommate a cigarette, she kissed me on the cheek. She was so excited. 
I was a bit taken aback, but it felt good to do a nice thing. I look forward to playing Santa with the cigarettes during afternoon break. I'm settling in. I can't remember the last time I stayed in bed all morning reading without interruption. For the first time, I forget there's locks on the doors, and I'm not counting down to when 48 hours is over. 4 o'clock p.m. I'm crying all over again. How could he say that to me? Despite 23 years of evidence that calling him would be a terrible idea, I call my dad anyway for support on the community payphone, and he tells me I'm a bad mother for breaking down, for ending up here, for not staying strong for my daughter, for falling apart and leaving her alone with her father all night. Who knows what she's doing right now? Didn't I ask any questions? Didn't I try to get out? How could I end up there, locked up like a common criminal? He says he heard a rumor that I lost my job. I have no idea how or where he hears that, but he assumes it's true. Always believes the worst of me. I told him that I was just at work yesterday, and I'd likely be released and back to work by Monday. If not, that's why sick days exist. And yes, I was lucky to have them. It's not that big a deal. He keeps ranting. I waited to cry until I could hide in the bathroom. 8 o'clock p.m. Crosswords and reading for the rest of the night. I almost finished the novel. I felt so exhausted. I was no longer afraid to go to sleep. Tomorrow morning, I'll sign up for some therapy sessions. I don't have to go home quite yet. I hear yelling down the hall and banging. It sounds like they're putting someone in isolation. So tired. Can't think anymore. Sunday, November 24th. 10 a.m. The nurse takes me down the hall. I sit down in a small room with a man in a suit. He asks me to tell him why I'm there. I tell him about the fight I had with my boyfriend, his constant verbal attacks, but how he's willing to father the baby I'm carrying that's not even his, and that has to count for something, right? He says he doesn't think I'm a psychological risk, whatever that means. That I'm just suffering an extreme amount of stress. He says I'll recommend that I go home today. And he apologizes saying they could have handled a hormonal pregnant woman like me better than they did. I want to kill myself. I don't mention it. He doesn't ask. 1 o'clock p.m. He picks me up from the facility. I was hoping it would be my dad. Our daughter's not in the car. She's at his parents, he tells me. I can see her soon. I brace, waiting for the fight to resume, as though the past 48 hours were a hazy dream. But he doesn't say another word, just grabs a cigarette from the open pack and lights it and cranks up corns falling away from me from their newly released Billboard Top 100 album, Issues. He must have also picked up a Kmart. And Jonathan Davis fills the space between us. Hey, I'm feeling tired. My time is gone today. You flirt with suicide. Sometimes that's okay. Hear what others say. I'm here standing hollow, falling away from me, falling away from me. This story is how I remember the first of three stays I've had in mental health facilities. Upon release, I returned home to domestic violence that escalated from psychological abuse to physical abuse, which led to the cops arriving in response to a neighbor's call, and when he got belligerent with them, was maced and cuffed on our living room floor. I ended the relationship. Again. It was my fourth time ending it. What was different now? My daughter was four. She'd already witnessed too much. I was pregnant with my son. Even though the abuse was not my fault, the guilt I felt about exposing them to it was immense. My previous attempts to leave included begging my parents to let me move back in with them just for two months so that I could save enough rent money to put a down payment on my own place. I'd called every shelter within 20 miles, and although the thought of staying in a shelter terrified me, I was willing to go. 
The waiting lists were long, and I was told because I had a full-time job, I wasn't a priority. I weighed quitting my job, but the pay was decent, especially with only a high school diploma. I had health benefits. Finally, I was able to use a well-timed tax return to leave. The police officers who arrived in response to my boyfriend's call did not explain to me what was happening. I was unaware that I was being taken to a psych ward and that I would be locked up and unable to leave. I was confused and scared that day when the elevator didn't arrive and the door was bolted shut. Other women have fared much worse than me. According to an NPR story from 2018, a woman named Mimi was locked up against her will for 20 days and was denied access to visitors, the telephone, and even her bathroom use was limited. Some women, and men, never make it to the hospital at all. According to the Washington Post in 2015, at least 25% of people who are shot and killed by the police suffer from acute mental illness at the time of their death. People with untreated mental illness are 16 times more likely to be shot by the police than other civilians are. In 2018, more than 250 mentally ill civilians were killed by police. This rate has been statistically consistent over the past four years measured. A 2019 study on the effectiveness of police crisis intervention studies has found that over the past 20 years, which would go back to 1999, the year I was forcibly hospitalized, there has been little difference between untrained and trained officers in reducing the risk of injury or death during emergency police interactions. Outcomes are even worse for mentally ill African Americans who are three times as likely to be injured or killed by police. During my hospitalization 20 years ago, I was offered no therapy and spent only 15 minutes of that 48 hours interacting with a mental health professional, the psychiatrist who determined I should be released. I was given no referrals, no treatment plan, and no suggestions or help, although I disclosed I was pregnant and the victim of domestic violence. I was released to my violent partner and blamed both by him and my own father for being weak and missing work and abandoning my daughter the weekend I was there. It would be 10 more years before I'd be given diagnoses, and then I was given lots of them. It's like they didn't really know what to do. Generalized anxiety disorder, major depression, OCD, PTSD, and bipolar disorder type 2. I went on to have two more major breakdowns, both which followed significant traumatic events in my life. I firmly believe that the reason I have so many diagnoses now is yes, absolutely partly because of genetic predisposition to mental illness in my family, partly because despite 10 years of off-and-on therapy and different medications, the trauma I experienced in my childhood and young adult years comes back hard during times of extreme stress. I also know that the trauma I experienced in my childhood was largely because of a father who was never treated or diagnosed for his own mental illness and a partner who wasn't treated for his anger issues and then was criminalized for the coping mechanisms he used, like narcotics, which led to addiction, which intensified his anger. I have empathy for him too. Our system of ostracization and punishment, rather than treatment and support in response to trauma, has destroyed countless lives. Today is World Mental Health Day, and I want to end the stigma of mental illness. I still feel anxious when I discuss my psychiatric hospitalizations, what will my friends, family, employers, and colleagues think, in a way I would not if I were hospitalized with a heart or kidney disease. People still equate mental illness with both evil and weakness. 
How many people say things like Trump is insane rather than Trump is saying or doing X harmful thing he's doing that day? Or we'll hear about somebody committing an act of violence on the news and say, that man was crazy. Part of the reason we do this is because we don't want to consider that sane people can do evil things or that sane people can commit acts of violence, but they can and they do. Statistically, people with mental illness are more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than the perpetrator. Believing these harmful stereotypes results in discrimination in hiring and housing in, well, practically everywhere, and even worse, those of us who have experienced trauma and who have mental illness internalize these negative stereotypes. We have a running soundtrack in our heads about how awful and unworthy we are, even when we're alone, even in a room with people who love us. So, what are some things we can do? One, defund the police and divert resources to mental health professionals and social workers so the police are not responding to situations they're not adequately trained for, not adequately educated for. Two, everyone, but especially those without a mental illness, be mindful of your language. Yes, words matter. Are you calling someone crazy or insane when what you mean to say is violent or terrifying? Are you using sexist, ableist terms like crazy ex-girlfriend without stopping to think why they've labeled her crazy in the first place? There's a long history of women being deemed crazy or hysterical when they're appropriately and reasonably reacting to abuse. Three, be mindful of the media you consume and the social media you share. Even good films like Fight Club, Me, Myself, and Irene, and Garden State get mental illness really wrong. Enjoy the films you want to enjoy, but recognize that films aren't an adequate representation of daily life with mental illness, and educate yourself. And if you're liking or retweeting posts calling a politician you don't like insane, or labeling someone who commits gun violence crazy, you're contributing to the stigma connecting mental illness with evil and violence, and you're making it less likely your friends with mental illness will trust or confide in you. 4. Encourage equality between mental and physical illness. I should be no more ashamed by telling someone I have a mood disorder than I should be about disclosing my thyroid disease, which is to say not ashamed at all. Despite my trauma, despite my mental illnesses, I've raised three children, have a graduate degree, a career I love, and meaningful friendships and relationships. 5. Talk to others about your own experience and normalize discussions of mental health and mental illness. I realize this may be safer for some of us than others, and that this safety is largely contingent on our race and economic status, so if you do have more privilege, use it for good. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE, and the website is ncadv.gov. Again, that's ncadv.gov. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is one 800 273 talk. And the hotline for mental health and substance abuse disorders is 1-877-SAMHSA, that's S-A-M-H-S-A-7, 1-877-SAMHSA-7. If you are living through domestic violence or are a survivor of domestic violence or are managing life with mental illness, I see you and love you. Your life matters and you deserve compassionate care and equal treatment in all aspects of your life. Whether you're a listener who knows me, maybe a family member, colleague, or friend, or perhaps one who doesn't, 
who stumbled upon this show because you love music or social issues, I'm here, and I'm happy to listen to your story, to listen to you speak without judgment. Feel free to email me at lifeisaplaylist at gmail.com. And if you like my content, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. <laughs>